I had supports from five years old throughout high school. Every year, twice a year, they'd have a meeting with my teachers. I had accommodations. And I think about how much that helped me and that made me feel very capable. I worked in the city of Chicago and we hear stories of parents sharing with me that the school is like, are you sure you want this on their record? Are you sure like this is gonna impact them getting into college? And that's just not true. Hello and welcome to the Women and ADHD podcast. I'm your host, Katie Weber. Let's jump right in. This is episode 40, in which I interview Lindsay Fleming. Lindsay is a licensed professional counselor who owns her own private practice in Chicago. If you've ever fallen down any ADHD rabbit holes on TikTok, then you've probably come across Lindsay on your For You page. Her videos destigmatize ADHD, anxiety, and the whole therapy experience, especially for young people. And she does an incredible job connecting with and helping children, teens, and young adults who are struggling with mental health. As of this recording, she has nearly half a million followers on TikTok, and she's also been featured on The Today Show, Cosmopolitan, The New York Times, and more. We talk about her ADHD diagnosis and her personal mental health journey, and now I'm the parent of a 14-year-old girl, so I also grill Lindsay all about the stigma around mental health and how platforms like TikTok are being used by mental health professionals to reach this generation. She is incredible, and I know you will love this conversation. Enjoy. It's been just a whirlwind year for you. I can't even imagine. It's dizzying for me to even think about all the things that I- as I was sort of doing my homework and looking you up online and looking, you know, I've seen your videos since I was diagnosed. You know, I, the first one of the first things I did when I was diagnosed was go on to TikTok. And yeah. so, um, yeah, we'll get to all that. But first, uh, let me just ask you kind of how long ago you were diagnosed with ADHD um, and when that was and kind of what led you up to thinking you even had ADHD in the first place? Yeah, so I'll start by prefacing it with I'm dyslexic, and so throughout my whole education life, um, I had always been receiving accommodations, and I think that that might have been part of, I'd like to think that that might have been masking some of my ADHD in the sense that anytime I struggled in class, they always assumed it was because of the dyslexia. So I really chalked it up to, okay, I know I'm anxious and I know I have this learning disability. When I got to grad school, so I was like 23, um, 22, 23, I was sitting in class and we had to do a diagnosing activity. And my best friend in grad school, obviously we spent a lot of time together. Our courses were three hours long. So for someone with ADHD sitting in a lecture for three hours long is really hard. Um, and my grad school friend, you know, we were going back and forth and we were learning about ADHD. And she said, you know, let me ask you these questions. Like, I want you to answer them honestly. Like, let's not do the project that we're supposed to be doing. And instead, let's play therapist and let me ask you some of these questions. So I was like, okay, I'm going to answer them honestly. And it was like every checkbox. And she's like, Lindsay, this, this is describing you. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Like, I already, I already know I'm anxious and I'm dyslexic. Like, I don't have ADHD. She's like, this, this is you. And so as we started going through the questions, I'm like, oh my gosh, this, this is me. And then I went and got a formal diagnosis and they were like, you definitely have ADHD. Um, and I got put on medication and I was going to therapy and it was remarkable. The difference 
So I was, I went from having a 3.3 GPA in college to 3.8 in grad school. Um, and so that really was a life-changing understanding of how my brain works and how I get so frustrated and blame myself for some like changing my, I explained it like I had my capstone, which is the huge, huge paper, right? Um, for grad school, you need to pass it in order to move on to the next year. And I changed my topic at midnight before it was due. And this is a 15 page research paper. So like I knew these behaviors were occurring and I'm like, no one else does this but me, but I struggled to understand it. So grad school when I was training to be a therapist was when I realized I had ADHD. Wow. It's funny how like there are certain things that I think about, like changing your a thesis topic at midnight the day before it's born or the day before it's due. And then thinking like, doesn't everybody do this? You know, like I, I sort of go back and forth between feeling like, wait, all of these things that I attribute to ADHD, like, doesn't everybody do this? This mm-hmm. is how everybody operates. And then swinging, you know, wildly to the other end, which is, oh my God, I can't believe I'm struggling a lot. Like, I can't believe this explains so many things that I never was able to put a finger on. And Yeah. And that's when we talk about the understanding of mental illness and thinking of everybody worries, right? That some people have anxiety disorder. Everybody struggles with regulation, whether it's being able to stay on task or gets distracted or doesn't feel motivated, but it's the degree that it's impacting you and the amount and different behaviors coming together. So it's not one thing, one time. And I think people have a really hard time understanding where's that line. And that's when, that's why we have professionals who understand that. Mm-hmm. But I hear a lot of people contribute either saying like, everybody thinks they're, they have anxiety or everybody thinks they have ADHD or on the other side where it's like, nobody has it. It's this thing. Like, so I hear so many opinions being thrown out and I think it really, when I break it down, it's a lack of understanding of what makes a diagnosis versus what makes, oh, these are some behaviors I have. Yeah. It is such an interesting puzzle. And I feel like I, I certainly relate. I, I spend a lot of mental energy thinking about like, how much am I struggling? Like, why isn't there a, you know, um, a more like concrete way that you can, you can measure these things because again, it's sort of like, I don't know. And then even with depression and anxiety, it was always a sense of like, how, how, how depressed am I? Is this medication working? Would I be worse off if it wasn't, if I wasn't on it, do I need more? Like there's just so many variables and so many (laughs) questions. Right. And I think I was listening to your Hey Lynn's podcast and there was, I can't remember which guest you were interviewing, but I loved when you were talking about that concept of, of like feeling like you need to be really in a bad state, like that you need to be like broken before you go to therapy and how we really need to like destigmatize therapy to such a degree where, um, you know, that there's not this sense of like, oh, I'm not struggling enough for me to actually go to therapy. Like that you have to get to a certain point of crisis before you actually seek help. And like that has certainly helped me. Um, I think ADHD, the diagnosis really helped me realize that like help is not a bad thing. Like, why did I even spend so much time thinking it was a bad thing? Like, why did we put so much pressure on ourselves to do things alone? Like help is amazing. (laughs) That's where I go back to this. Really, what's our culture for young kids? And the comparison aspect, even when we think about grades, it's always comparing yourself. It's always how do I measure up to my peers? Um, and I, I really think we need to change that into more of, we all need help. Sometimes here's my strengths. 
how can I help other people who don't have this strength? And here's some places where I need help and becoming more of a supportive space instead of always competing with each other. And that's what I see a lot in, in talking to about this idea of, am I struggling enough? Mm-hmm. So many kids in my office saying, oh my gosh, Lindsay, you could be helping like so many more people. Like, I don't know why you see me for an hour every week. It's like, oh, so I'm supposed to wait. And this is what I was saying on my podcast. So I'm supposed to wait until you're in crisis in order to help you. That doesn't seem very fair. Um, I'd much rather someone come in early and be like, I don't know if I'm struggling. I don't know what's going on. And give them a few skills and they're able to adapt those in. I don't want anyone suffering more than they need to. So same thing with parents. Sometimes parents will, and this is where I struggle too, because the access to to care, right? So Mm -hmm. at the hospital Mm -hmm. I worked at in Chicago, there was a two-year waiting list for outpatient therapy. So by the time a parent is like, okay, I've noticed this in my child, they need support, then they call trying to get their child support, to two-year wait list, that kid is now struggling two more years before they can see a therapist. So we're really looking then seeing a lot of kids coming in through the ER, through the inpatient unit, because they weren't able to receive that support, even when parents are advocating and trying to get them that support. Yeah. And then you wonder why we have this sense that it must be crisis. Yeah. You know, I actually grew up in Canada and so I, you know, started seeing a psychiatrist in Mm -hmm. university and had always been seeing, you know, had always been in therapy of some form and then moved to the U S when I was 26. And again, like therapy was just sort of one of those things that because I never had to pay for it, it was just like getting your hair cut. Like it was just like, it was, it was up there in terms of priorities and it always has been, but you're right. Like when you talk about how cost prohibitive it is here, then, you know, of course it makes sense that for this next generation of kids that we have things like podcasts and TikTok and Mm -hmm. social media and that we can use, you know, I love, I love how, um, pragmatic you are about social media, especially for kids. I have a 14 year old. And so, um, and you know, and she loves Reddit and I love Reddit and, uh, you know, and people and uh, every once in a while people are like, Oh, Reddit is such a terrible place. How can you let your 14 year old on there? And I'm like, Reddit is just like a microcosm of the world. You know, I'm like, that's like saying, how can you let your 14 year old on the internet? Like, yeah, mm-hmm. a lot of terrible things exist on Reddit. A lot of amazing things exist. Thankfully she spends most of her time on like r slash cats. <laughs> um, but I also feel like there has to be conversation, there has to be handholding and all of that stuff. So it's exactly what I, I think we need to change as well. You know, we look at how, at least in the US, we talked a lot. And I remember I was an anxious teen, right? So I remember in my addictions course, my teacher said, you know, we talked about fear tactics and do they work? And a lot of what we did with drugs or drugs are bad. And if you do it, your life's over, right? And with teens, that's our approach oftentimes. Like if you do this thing, if you do this thing, you're going to, your life is going to be over. And they said to the class, raise your hand if that works. Like if that made you not want to do drugs. I was the only one who rose their hand. And like, then that's my bias, right? Because I was an anxious kid. So I'm like, oh, if this is going to ruin my life, I can't do this. Where everyone else is like, no, I'm like, oh my goodness. So, and she said, exactly. It works on the most vulnerable, anxious kids sometimes. But the majority that we want to do where we see it really benefit is this responsibility aspect of giving kids facts. Because as soon as you say, you know, those commercials that used to be out in the U.S., there'd be this person who smoked marijuana and then they'd be like flat 
and oh, they're not the same anymore. As soon as a kid sees someone who smokes, they're going to be like, that's not what they taught me. So there goes your accountability, your credibility for everything. Mm. So really taking a responsibility aspect in things with teens and especially the internet, I hear so many people saying how, oh, it's the phone, it's the phone, it's the phone for their kids, which does it play a role? Absolutely. But it's about having a conversation with your kids and teaching them how to use their phone in a way that's most beneficial for them and not using fear tactics of if you keep being on your phone or if your grades drop, you're getting your phone taken away. Because what happens is I have teens who experience something online, whether it's bullying someone, an adult, like messaging them inappropriately, or they see something that scares them and they're too scared to tell their parents because they're scared. Oh, I'm going to get the app taken away. So again, I really feel like a responsibility aspect is super important in having open dialogue and conversations with your kids around everything, social media, um, alcohol, everything can be a lot more beneficial for your, your children and teaching them problem solving skills. Yeah. Oh my God. It's such a fine line. I mean, I remember like when I had my first cat, she always went on the kitchen counters. And so I used a spray bottle to get her off the kitchen counters. And then I would like, as I would walk into the kitchen, I would hear my cat jumping off the kitchen counter. And I was like, I haven't trained her to not be on the kitchen counter. I've just trained her to to hide from me the fact that she's on the kitchen counter. And so I'm like that. I feel like I think of that analogy a lot when I think of like talking openly with my daughter mm-hmm. about they, you know, I'm like, the last thing I ever want her to do is to feel like she was going to disappoint me. So she should hide things from me because yeah. it's exactly the relationship I had with my parents. Right. Mm-hmm. And I didn't tell them anything. Um, and when we talk about ADHD too, like teens with ADHD, you're taking kids whose brains are already more impulsive and struggle with, you know, thinking before we act. And instead yeah. of g- gaining skills, we're just saying, Oh, you can't do this and not helping them problem solve and and develop these skills that they're really struggling with. Right. Yeah. And, 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 you know, I think that's a conversation my husband and I have a lot with my son because, you know, most women, my age, I'm 46, most women, my age who are diagnosed with ADHD end up coming through their kids, right? Like their kids Mm -hmm. were diagnosed and then they start to look it up and they're like, wait a minute, this was my childhood too. (laughs) Right. Well, I didn't have that experience. I had it through my therapist. So my therapist was diagnosed through her son, but then she started to recognize a lot of my qualities and was sort of gently nudging me for a couple of years. Like, I think you have ADHD. And I was always like, all right, I didn't know what to do with that information. I w- I'm like, I'm not hyper. And, um, I didn't like, know it didn't mean anything to me until the pandemic when I just like imploded. Mm-hmm. Um, because my kids were home, my husband was home, I had no housekeeper anymore, I couldn't do my business, like everything just imploded. And so, like you said, like there's ways in which you can kind of know about what ADHD is, but it doesn't like personally hit you in in that meaningful way until something triggers it. Um, and I, what was I talking about? I don't remember now. Uh, oh yeah. The stigma of uh, the Mm -hmm. stigma of ADHD, which is just like, I've, it never occurred to me to 
hide it from anybody or my family. And it never occurred to me to not talk openly about it because for me, it was such a revelation. Like you said, like I was like, oh my goodness, this explains so much. This is the best thing that's ever happened to me. Suddenly, you know, I'm like, I'm, I'm basically like that book. That's like, you mean I'm not crazy and lazy and all those things like this. It felt like the best thing that ever happened to me, this diagnosis. And so I'm very open about it. Whereas my husband was sort of like, maybe you should not talk about it around the kids and and so I saw through his eyes how there is that stigma, um, and I obviously I've seen it more and more, especially when it comes to young people who are worried about like not being employable, you know, and like all of these ways in which they can't be open. They don't have the privilege to just sort of be open about their diagnosis. Um, and so it's a conversation we have a lot, which is like, how do you present? How do you? how do you educate and present ADHD for somebody who is a, you know, a kid and you have to worry about how that stigma is going to affect them in mm-hmm. school yes. and how they think of themselves. Cause I like, do you ever want, do you ever think back? Like, had you known about your ADHD when you were younger, would it have affected things you like, would you even have gone for a master's degree? You know what I mean? Like there's often that way in which we can kind of self edit, you know? Yeah. And that's where I think, the school support comes in um, and parental, obviously parental support. I always think of where can we make the most impact? Mm -hmm. And I was very fortunate that my parents' grades was not their priority at all. And I felt that. And my mom, she's so funny. I got a C in a class and I was like devastated because I tried so hard. Like one of my elementary school teachers is like, I feel bad giving her a B or a bad grade because of how much she tries, but I was still only an AB student. Like I, and it's, you know, that's frustrating because I'm putting in all this effort. I'm watching my peers put in half the effort and get better grades than me. Um, and one time I got a C in a class and run a big test. And my mom is like, walked in the room and I was oh so mad at myself. And she's like, must be the teacher and walked away. And I was like, mom. So she really like empowered me to, to not take grades as seriously and focus on my effort. And then the school system actually approached my mom, my parents and said, you know, we think Lindsay has a learning disability. We want to get her tested in kindergarten. So I had supports from five years old throughout high school. Every year, twice a year, they'd have a meeting with my teachers. I had accommodations. And I think about how much that helped me. And that made me feel very capable where I now worked, I worked in the city of Chicago and we hear stories of parents sharing with me that the school is like, are you sure you want this on their record? Are you sure like this is going to impact them getting into college? And that's just not true. Mm -hmm. And so we're seeing sometimes the stigma, whether it's from parents or actual schools, whether they're not able to support all their students or sometimes saying things that I'm just like, hmm, let's think about this. And I think that can really make or break a kid and their confidence. Cause I know like taking my tests outside of the classroom to have more time so I could focus. It was really hard peer wise. Cause everyone's like, where are you going? What are you doing? And explaining that. So I think if I, to get back to your question, if I knew that I had ADHD growing up, I think because I was already informed of my being dyslexic and had that support, I think it would have been nice for me to know, but I know a lot of other people's experiences would be really different. Yeah. Sure. I mean, I definitely felt like my parents didn't pressure me to get good grades and I definitely did not, but I had two older brothers who got 
stellar mm-hmm. grades. And so I was just more of a confusing element to my parents, which was sort of like, what happened to you? And I, and I remember like always feeling like I had an undiagnosed learning disorder and didn't mm-hmm. really understand because like many women, I was told like, you have all this potential. Why aren't, you know, why are you failing your tests? And I sort of felt like, well, what is this potential? Why are you seeing it? I don't know. Why, why is there all this pressure? I can't, like, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. And and so then my mother would always just be like, well, that's okay. Not everybody gets good grades or like, that's okay. College isn't for everybody. And, and now looking back, I see like how damaging those labels were to my sense of intelligence, you know, and, and I think that that's such a common experience with people who are undiagnosed ADHD, which is like, I know I'm not dumb. Like I know I'm bright. I just can't show it in, in the ways in which it needs to be shown. And so, like you said, I think it's so important to really focus on the fact that like, you're not the problem, Mm -hmm. the way, the arena in which you need to show your intelligence is not a fit for a good fit for you. (laughs) So like, so the problem is not you. The problem is the system. Exactly. And that, and what you're speaking of is a lot of people's experiences of this idea of you need to do this. What is going on with you? Why aren't you able to complete your homework? Why, why aren't you able to do X, Y, and Z? And that is putting all of the responsibility on the child. And we don't know how our brain works. And that's where I do see a lot of why, why are you doing this? Teachers trying to be supportive for kids, but it's the lack of education around, we don't, they don't know why they're doing this. And when you keep asking them, kids will come up with a reason because they think they need one. And a lot of times it's self-blame. Like, I don't know, I guess I'm just lazier. I don't know. I guess I just not that smart instead of saying, helping them recognize, oh, my processing speed is slow. So it's going to take me a couple of times to read this. Oh, my memory isn't the best. So I'm going to have to think of different ways to work on things that I need to memorize. Oh, I'm not good at timed tests. Okay. How can I work on this? So instead of really honing in on what's the skill and how does your brain work differently and here's your strengths, and this is what you're really good at, like with people with ADHD, big picture thinking and coming, being creative and coming up with ideas. Um, and instead, it's it's just focusing in on how come you can't fit in this box and how do we get you to fit in this box? And you need to figure out how to fit in this box. Right. Which really answers that question I had earlier, which was like, why do we have such a hard time asking for help? <laughs> because we're told our whole lives, you yeah. need to figure this out. Just do mm-hmm. it. Just do the thing. <laughs> This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. If you're a regular listener of this podcast, you know I'm very open about my own experiences with therapy. I've been seeing the same therapist for years, and in fact, it was my therapist who first suggested I had ADHD and set me on this personal path of transformation. But it also took a while to find the right fit for me, which is why it's so awesome that online resources like BetterHelp exist. The service is available for clients worldwide, so there's a broad range of expertise, which may not be available locally for a lot of us. Also, it's more affordable than traditional offline counseling and financial aid is available. If you visit their website and read their testimonials that are posted daily, there are actually quite a few reviews that specifically reference help with ADHD. As a special offer for listeners of the Women and ADHD podcast, you'll get 10% off your first month. Simply sign up at betterhelp.com. That's H-E-L-P dot com slash women ADHD. 
So, so how was your parents' reaction? Because you have siblings too, right? So, yeah. how was your parents' reaction? And do you have siblings with ADHD? And yes, I do have a sibling with ADHD. And my parents' reactions. <laughs> put my mom on blast a little bit. Love my mom, like the most supportive person ever. Um, but when I was going through grad school, I was like, "Mom, I really think I have ADHD." She's like, "You always think there's something wrong with you." I'm like, <laughs> "No, that's because there is." And two, I was like. Oh my gosh, like everybody has anxiety in our family. She's like, you think there's always something wrong with everyone. And it's like, because it's genetic and our family is um, so anxious. So my parents, though, are very supportive. Um, they, I told them that I had ADHD. They had some questions and just trying to understand it more. Um, and they were like, oh, that kind of makes sense now that I talked to them about it. Then they they had all these moments as I educated them more in what ADHD is. My mom's like, you know, now that you say that in school, your teachers would be like, Lindsay does not stop talking. And my dad would say, move her seat. And they'd say, it doesn't matter where we put her. She will talk to someone <laughs> near the wall and she will find something to talk about. So there were these, these behaviors but I think because of my people pleasing and my anxiety, I, I really tried so hard that um, I don't think people recognized how much I was suffering and how how much um, I was struggling, even myself, right? Because I'm comparing myself to what other people are putting out there. So my parents were very supportive and um, they didn't love the idea of medication, which I think a lot of parents get stuck there. And I just talked to them about it more and said, you know, this is something I need. Just like if it's, um, if I had asthma, I need an inhaler. It's something that will help me. Can I try to get stuff done without it? Yes. Will it be like debilitating and hard and draining? Yes. So if there's something I can take and now they're very like on board about it and trust mm -hmm. that I'm doing what's best for my health. But I do hear that a lot from parents. There's a fear of of medication for children, for teens and adults. I know. And it is understandable. I mean, I really like how Hallowell talks about, uh, it, it's like squinting, you know, if you need glasses, like you can squint, sure. Yeah. <laughs> uh, or, you know, or you can like, if you need glasses to drive, you could not drive, but like, mm -hmm. you know, at the same time, like, why wouldn't you get glasses? And I totally see that side of it. And I, I certainly have been on my, my share of lots of antidepressant medications over the years and was very quick to try medication when I was first diagnosed. But I also sort of see the side to medication, which is just like, there's so more questions than answers sometimes when it comes, especially to psychotropic medication, which was like what I was talking about before, which is like, is this working? Is this the right yeah. dosage? Do I need it? Oh my God, has it been a month already? I need to re I need to get a new prescription. Like there's so many hurdles and so many questions that sometimes it, it's just easier to not be on it. You know what I mean? And so that's when I think it really, the emphasis needs to be on like, what other help do you have? What is, what lifestyle are, you know? And I feel like that's where the medical system really fails us, which is like people get a diagnosis and then, and then they're like, now what? And the doctor says, here's your prescription. And then you leave and that's it. That's all you get. Everything else is basically research and you're self-taught or like if, you know, if you're in a position where you can go down these rabbit holes, which usually with ADHD, that's where we're, <laughs> we spend a lot of time down and we're, <laughs> we're learning but exactly and I get very frustrated um even like I had I get some kids who come in and parents will be like we've gone to seven specialists stomach specialists for stomach aches 
for 11 year old. Mm. Not one of the specialists said, maybe this is anxiety. So again, I, I do, oh, we'll send you to another specialist. Try this medication try this. And I'm like, this is anxiety. And when you treat the anxiety, the stomach aches went away. And so with ADHD as well, um, I do see so many people who I'll be like, like, oh, I have ADHD. Like I take medication. I'm like, oh, that's great. Um, I'm like, I love my therapy. Like therapy has been so helpful. Like, oh, I've never done that. I don't think that's for me. And I sit there, I'm like, hmm. If we know that the research tells us the best form of to get the best outcome would be combined therapy and medication, it is confusing to me how we are in a place where that's not the first recommendation of, okay, let's get you a therapist and we'll have a group discussion of what we think is the best treatment for you and come up with a treatment plan. I've even had a doctor tell a parent, why don't you ask your therapist, me, what medication they, I think they should be on in the dosage. And I sat there, I'm like, I am not a medical professional. Mm-hmm. I don't know. This is not my realm of the world. And it was so inappropriate. And the parent was like, oh, like, oh, you don't want you. I thought you would know. And so too, sometimes I worry of like when people are getting medication from um, their normal doctor, their pediatrician, I just sometimes I, I make sure I'm like, let's, let's see a psychiatrist. Let's see someone who specializes in these psych medications. Um, and then there are some pediatricians who are amazing and I love working with them and they do such a good job. But again, it's just this lack of, I don't think because of the stigma, a lot of people know this, the, the system and what their options are. So you see people just blindly believing whoever they go to, instead of saying like, mm, this doesn't feel right. Or I don't think, is there more that I could, like you said, we're doing self-education instead of someone sitting there being like, you have ADHD, here's, this is the type of therapy that works best for ADHD. This is the medication options. If you feel like your symptoms are impacting you daily and the skills you do aren't working and it's too hard, like we need more. And so I think having more of this collaborative approach is super important for the best care for our clients. Mm -hmm. The, and I, yeah. And I, I guess it also goes back to that idea of like, how this belief that like, I'm not broken enough for therapy, you know, or even like couples therapy, you know, a couple where it's like, we have to be on the brink of divorce before we go to couples therapy. And you're like, no. Um, yeah. I wanted to let you know about the brand new women and ADHD online community. So two things I hear time and time again from listeners of this podcast is a, wow, I feel so much less alone. And B, I feel like I finally found my people. We have felt so alone for so long, which is why the desire to understand ourselves and make connections and feel understood is really strong in all of us. I mean, it's why I started this podcast, to find others who were experiencing life like I was. And in doing so, I have met so many guests and listeners who are just amazing, brilliant ADHD women. And now I want you all to meet each other. That's why I've started this free online community because I believe finding our people is an integral part of treating our ADHD. When it comes to understanding our brains and the way we tick, We do so through conversation and community. We like to talk it out and get feedback and explore ourselves and sort through the chaos and ultimately know that we are not alone in all of this. 
So head over to womenandadhd.com to join. It's totally free. You can look around, introduce yourself, post thoughts and questions, pontificate to your heart's content. And there's also a constantly evolving list of ADHD resources. And you also have the option at any time to upgrade and that'll give you all sorts of exclusive content like early access to this podcast, a free copy of my audiobook, Worth It, A Journey to Food and Body Freedom, as well as twice monthly live member hangouts on Zoom with me and other members where we talk about our ADHD brains and symptoms and hormones and nutrition and plenty of other life topics we obsessively ponder as neurodivergent women. So again, head over to womenandadhd.com to join us. There's also a link in the show notes. All right. I can't wait to see you there soon. Uh, Okay. So let's talk about this last year um, and, you know, no big deal, whatever, pandemic. (laughs) Uh, But it's been a crazy year for you. So you joined TikTok in March of 2020, right? Yes. So last year in March. So a year ago. So that would be 2019, 2020. At the beginning of the pandemic? Yeah. 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 2020. I know, right? (laughs) And you were, so you were, you're, you were, you specialize in counseling children and teens. Mm -hmm. So, um, so like you went from seeing people in person, I guess, to seeing people over Zoom. And, and then what, what led to you to be like, I think I'm going to start a TikTok account. (laughs) Yeah. So, um, as you know, I'm sure you know. With ADHD, I get a lot of ideas and I like to be busy and I start a million projects and I finish about half of them. So um, what happened was I was working full time at a children's hospital um, in Chicago and I worked in their partial hospitalization program. So those are kids who come during the day who are struggling, right? So it's like a school day. I'm um, the one who's on the floor with the kids the whole time. So if a kid's having a hard time in the class, I'm there as their support. So I'll help them pick a coping skill, take a break with them. I'm really about like the behavioral and impacting, like let's practice our skills in the moment. And I loved my job. Absolutely loved it. However, um, I started my private practice and then I fell in love with being able to do preventative work was where really where my heart fell because we would help these kids, give them all the support they needed. We send them back to an environment that couldn't didn't have the resources to provide them with the same amount of support. And then they would struggle again. So I was stuck in this loop of like, is there more we can be doing? So when I started my private practice, I really started in the town I grew up in. I really wanted to become involved in the community. And I had volunteer coached cheerleading for three years. And so I really knew the girls and parents and what the community needed. What I saw was these, these middle school girls were struggling with self-esteem so much. I would ask them the beginning of practice, say something you're proud of. And it was pulling teeth. I, everyone's proud of their dog. All right. We can't talk about our dog anymore. What's another thing? I got an A in a test. Oh, I got an A in the test. Oh, I got an A. Um, No more about grades. And they really struggled. I said, girls, what is going on? Like you should be proud and confident about your accomplishments and things that you work on. And they said, Oh, I don't want to come across as like cocky or too confident. So what's the difference between being cocky and being confident? You're like, there is no difference. And to me, I sat there, I'm like, oh my goodness. They fully believe like that confidence is a negative thing. Mm-hmm. So 
I developed a workshop for middle school girls where the first 45 minutes we talked about self-esteem building. We talked about school stress. We talked about communication and we talked about social media. And I reached out to my cheer moms and I was like, hey, do any of your daughters want to do this? And about seven of them signed up. And at the end of the group, they said, Lindsay, you know, we want to do this again and we don't want anyone new coming. And I said, mm, are we being clicky? Like, are we, oh, we get to hang out with our old cheer coach and like, we're learning these skills. Like what, why do you not want anyone added to the group? Or is it that you've just really developed a relationship? You feel safe. Like, I just wanted to comb it out. And they're like, no, 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 they're, none of us wanted to do this, Lindsay. I'm like, what? They're like, none of us wanted to sign up. Our moms forced us to, we thought it was going to be like school. This is wave, but we love it. I was like, okay. So then I was like, I want to, honor that. And I'm happy that they have that space. So then I created another workshop with another group of girls. And with those girls, we did um, a social media challenge where if anybody decreased their, so everyone decreased their social media time for their set goal for the week, we, I would bring them all Starbucks. So we came in and they all achieved their goals and we could walk to the Starbucks in my office. I'm like, all right, girls, like, are we ready to go? And one of the girls goes, Lindsay, we don't want Starbucks. And I'm sitting there like, okay, not made of money. So let's keep it like <laughs> low cost. What else do you girls want? And like, we want you to download TikTok. And I was like, absolutely not. That is your space. Like you don't want me, my face popping up like on TikTok. Like I'm not, I'm not going to do it. So then the pandemic hit and I had to close out um, all of my groups. I had to go virtual. I had just quit the hospital so now I'm like, okay, um, this is a little stressful. And I found myself with a lot of time because I was at the hospital 40 hours a week, a lot of time where I'm like, what can I do? So some of the girls have reached out saying like they, they missed the group, that they were struggling. Um, and these aren't people who necessarily might need like once a week therapy. So I said, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it. I'm going to download TikTok. And I'm going to make some videos to help my community. My first videos are like five tips on building your confidence. And I even say this is a shout out to my middle school girls. And then I did this video because so many of my teens were struggling with virtual therapy. And I would ask them a question that in my office they could answer no problem. And now they're giving me like eyes and like, oh, I don't know. I don't know. I'm like body language. I'm like something's going on here. And I realized even if they were in their own space, they're so fearful of their someone listening in. Um, parents sometimes would pop in, oh, hi, Lindsay. Like, oh, they just want to say hi to me. And they don't mean it in a way that's going to impact therapy. But what that does is it creates the environment that doesn't feel safe and confidential. Mm -hmm. So that's when I made a video saying, me holding up signs saying like, oh, how to FaceTiming your ex-boyfriend go when really I was saying out loud, like, how was your math test? And that video just hit and it got 5 million views. And I really didn't post on social media before that. So I sat there, I'm like, oh my goodness, like people are relating to this. This is teaching me so much about what teens are experiencing in therapy. Everyone was commenting like, oh my goodness, here's what my therapist does that's helpful. Or I wish my therapist did this or um, and some nuances of therapy that people were like, oh, I didn't know I was the only one who felt this way in session. So then it made me think, like we were talking earlier, this stigma around therapy people don't know what it looks like in the therapy room unless they've been in it. And then I went back to my clients and I said, you know, is this what you expected therapy to be like? And they're like, no, I thought it was going to be like school or like a teacher, or like another parent telling me this is what you have to do or this. 
So I was like, there's such a misunderstanding. And again, going back to how I really want to do preventative work, it's like this fits with my goals and it's helping people and people who don't have access to therapy who can't afford it or don't don't have um, access. So I was like, this, I'm going to, I'm going to do this. I'm going to try to be able to provide people with something that can be helpful for their mental health. And that's mm-hmm. how I started on TikTok. And now it's like over a year later, I'm still here. So yeah, I mean, I think if anything, it's really taught us the power of like the one minute vignette in terms of making those connections and taking those thoughts deeper. And that's really what therapy is, right? Like it's like making connections and talking it out. And, and yeah, there is that misconception, I think that you're going to get like told what to do, you know, that it's going to be like uh, self-help <laughs> Mm -hmm. (laughs) and and I've been thinking about that a lot recently just from interviewing uh, Sophie Gray who was like I love how she just like really articulated how self-help is like bullshit (laughs) and and I always knew from my own personal experience that Mm -hmm. like anytime I read self-help books they made me more anxious and they made me more depressed but I never really made even made that connection like I actually had one of my new year's resolutions one year was to not read any self-help books because I was such a self-help junkie and -hmm. I was like I'm only going to read fiction for a year and and I kept telling myself that I was like fiction is just as good for you as a self-help book um, but I just love, like, I've been thinking so much about the power of storytelling and the power of conversation. And like, maybe that really is how we heal ourselves and how we help ourselves. And that like reading a book on like, do A, then B, then C and being like, hey, why isn't this working? I'm a failure. is just like setting up that system of like, you're not going to reinvent yourself overnight. No. And everybody, humans are so complex. And everybody's needs are different. Everyone's environment's different. And we like to chalk it up and simplify it, but that that doesn't create lasting change. Mm-hmm. And again, it's this whole idea of if you try harder, if you do this, this, if you do X, Y, and Z, then you'll feel better. And I worry with the, I love how much attention that we're giving to mental health. And I worry like with all fields though, there are people who will be trying to send like, get you this quick fix or this life-changing thing. And to me, those are always red flags because we're talking about life changes that takes time. It takes effort. It takes consistency. And you have to build a support system around you to help you get there. Mm -hmm. And so the idea of reading one book or doing one behavioral change of making your bed every day is going to change your whole life. It's like that one skill might help you and it might be oh, great. Now I feel, feel accomplished in the morning, but that's not helping you understand yourself more. And it's not helping you learn about what you want out of life and where, what you want to change in your life. Right. Yeah. Well, and I think we're often preyed upon because we, especially with ADHD, you think like, I'm impatient. I want something to be, I want something to be immediate and I want to like go 150% in one direction or another. Right. And so like, of course there's going to be books and, and marketing materials and whatever to capitalize on that, that mm-hmm. desire for instant gratification. Mm-hmm. So, so how do you talk to teens then about like, so on the one hand, I love the, the way you said about confidence. And I think it's so important, especially for women to like, learn how to brag, you know, and, and, and to stop focusing on like, how likable am I? Right. Um, because so much of our confidence really has to come 
from outside of our of our likability in society. But then on the other on the flip side, then you have social media and you have likes and follows and popularity and like all of that. And like, it's dizzying. Like, how do you sort of talk about that overwhelming desire for validation? And like, how to kind of manage that in in a balanced way, when you're also then talking about like social media, where that's all it's always it's all about validation. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And that's where I bring it back to bigger pictures than ourselves, right? We were talking about that earlier, how we always, it's always kind of put on us, anything, right? It's always put on us. Like you need to do this. You need to make this change. You need to um, think about this. And I bring it back to where did this come from? Why do we feel like, why do you feel like you, why do you only feel pretty when other people tell you that? And I say to my clients, could I follow you around all day and say, you're beautiful, you're gorgeous. Would that help you? Probably, maybe, but that's not possible. And that doesn't help you love yourself unconditionally. So I really bring it back to where, where did this come from? This idea that women especially have to be pleasers or polite. I go, how, how do we describe young girls, right? Boys like, oh, they're so loud. And oh, they're, they're having so much fun. And girls is like, oh, she's so sweet. She's so polite. She's so kind. And so we're conditioned to know, oh, this is, this gets praise. This, this means I'm good. And when women especially use their voice and, and speak out of turn or in spaces, there's a lot of times kind of some pushback. And so I utilize the idea of making it bigger than yourself and being able to be your biggest cheerleader, because a lot of times we're kinder to our best friends or we think more highly of other people than ourselves and asking ourselves, is this internal validation or is this external validation? So am I looking for other people to tell me I'm doing a good job or do I know it in my heart and in myself? And that's the goal is recognizing who do I want to be? And once we realize who I want to be, what's important to me, what are my values and try to live by those that helps, I think, a lot. And I don't think we give teens space to understand. We say, oh, make good decisions, all this stuff. If we bring it back to values, it's super helpful then for teens to know how to make choices. So what are my values? Who do I want to be? Then am I living by that? If I'm not, how can I make some changes to live by that? Then when you're met with a hard decision, you rely back on your values. And so we put comf- we put the way people look, likes, um, how many followers I have in this kind of box of, oh, this is what's important. So I bring it back to that's not what is important to you. So making an impact sounds like having a support, having people in your life. Um, What is important? Is it being fully yourself. So picking out your values can help you then become more confident and not need that external validation from society that you're pretty or you're doing a good job or you're successful enough. And it brings it back to, again, these boxes and, oh, this is what success looks like for me in my office. If a client can say they love themselves and before that was really hard, that is success rather than just focusing on achievements and grades and who has the best job and did you get into the Ivy League school? It's instead thinking like, I want to learn to love myself more. Here's how I can do that. And so with teens, how I talk about confidence, again, is bringing it back to this societal aspect and then bringing it back to when they have this moment where they think negatively about themselves or 
when they post and they don't get enough likes, so then they start to feel down on themselves. I tell them to ask themselves, where is this coming from? Where is this thought that I'm not enough or this is what matters? Where is that coming from? And when we take it back away from, oh, again, this is our problem and I just care too much, it can really help teens see the bigger picture and start to make those changes of becoming who they are that I see women doing in like their 20s and 30s, um, having more of those thoughts of, no, my voice matters and I can take up space in this room and I don't need to smile more and I don't need to be polite when I ask for my needs. Um, and that I think can be really powerful for, for young girls. That's amazing. I mean, I, God, so my next question is, what do you love most about your ADHD? I feel like we talked about that, especially when it came to the TikTok videos. So what do you, what do you love most about What I love most about my ADHD is definitely the creativity piece and my ability to, I have an idea. I don't think twice. I'm like, oh, I'm going to do this. And I can come up with a whole business plan. Um, And there is a famous, uh, someone who is ADHD is famous, who owns, who created one of the airlines. And he, I think he said it really well. He's like, I would rather create 50 flight patterns than read a one page article. Mm. And so oftentimes it's, it's, the fun part and the exciting part is great. And I've had to really work on some of those skills of setting boundaries for myself. And like you said, I can get so excited about TikTok and that can become my whole world. And then I'm not hanging out with my friends. I'm not like calling my parents back. I'm, you know, my therapy notes are like months behind. So in ways where it's like, it's my superpower. It's also my kryptonite, right? Cause as soon mm. as I don't, as soon as I'm met with um, get stuck or something, then it's like, I just want to drop it completely. And so I feel like a lot of times I can go into these phases of, Oh, I'm hanging out with my friends all the time. I'm spending less time on social media. And then I'm like, Oh, I should get a TikTok idea. And then I'm re recharged and creative again. And I want to just post a bunch of TikToks daily. And so I've really tried to help myself get into a routine of that balance of, I don't need to, just cause I have an idea right in this moment, I don't need to get out my ring light and start recording and make five different TikToks. It's like, I'm allowed to relax and spend time with people and really getting comfortable recharging and listening to what my body needs instead of just getting fixated on an idea and trying to put it into play. Yeah. Yeah. You know, when you were talking about like that, the RSD aspect of, you know, like I just spent all this work posting something and it felt like a dead weight and I can like ruminate on that. Um, but I think what is really important for us with ADHD too, is just the ability to label like, Oh, this is what is happening right now. I am experiencing RSD right now. This is how long it'll probably last. And then, you know, like that has been such a game changer for me in terms of how I relate to depression and anxiety or just my reactions to people or, you know, like, Oh, I've been, did, did I offend this person or all of these things that like, I'm able to kind of almost almost like CBT, like, you know, you're able to kind of dis, uh, distance yourself from what mm-hmm. is happening in, in the way, how important it is for us to label what is happening. Uh, mm-hmm. I think it's been really important too. And I think a lot of people with ADHD struggle with feeling identification. Um, like, what am I feeling in this moment? We just become so overwhelmed by our emotions. And so I really hone in on, instead of getting over like stuck in that space is asking, what am I feeling? And being able to, like you said, label it and describe it. And that is something that I think everybody could use some help with is (laughs) labeling our feelings. Like adults don't have 
the language. So, but we expect kids to tell us how they're feeling. So I do put that into practice a lot of the, and it's really powerful. And I always tell the story of when I first went to therapy, my therapist, I, I was crying in session and my therapist is like, what are you feeling right now? And I was like, I don't know. And then she's like, but again, I'm a pleaser. So it really came out as like, oh, I'm just not sure. And then again, she asked me like, well, what do you think you're feeling? And I wanted to be like, listen, lady, I came here because I don't know what I'm feeling and I need your help with it. And you're telling me, like, you're asking me these questions that are so frustrating. I wanted to like yell at her. But of course, I was just like, I'm not sure. I don't know. I think maybe sad. And so it takes a lot of practice to just be able to learn oh, when I feel this in my body, this means this feeling and everybody feels feelings differently. So again, um, the labeling I think is really powerful for anyone, but especially people who struggle with that emotional regulation and being able to regulate our emotions. People are like, oh, just stop getting so upset about things. But it's like, I can't even label what I'm feeling or why. And you're asking me to, to fix it. And so we got to start the start where how do we understand our feelings and behaviors a little bit better? Uh, yeah. And, and then, you know, I think it's why we also deflect so often when somebody's, cause it's when somebody says, how are you? You're like, uh, where do I even start? Do you have two hours? And so then the alternate is I'm good. I'm good. Thanks. How are you? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, okay. So now the term ADHD, I think is so problematic, especially for women. Um, we don't have a deficit of anything. We, <laughs> we, uh, so many of us don't feel physically hyperactive. Mm-hmm. So I know like, have you, what would, if you could rename ADHD to something else, have you thought about what you would rename it to? Yeah. When I, I, you know, I, I've thought about it and I'm not sure because I feel like, I feel like we're still learning so much about ADHD, especially in women. So what I do think though, is instead of focusing on the hyperactivity and the inattentiveness, I feel like focusing more on the regulatory part of it. So whether it's being able to focus in class, whether it's being able to regulate our emotions, whether it's being able to communicate our emotions, focusing on the right thing, right? Cause we could focus on something else. Like I can look, make, create a Pinterest board of my new office for two hours, but I can't text back that one parent. So I think focusing more on the regulatory piece of it would be important to me instead of focusing on describing the behaviors that sometimes are occur because of our inability to regulate our attention or regulate our emotions and our thinking. That's such a great point. And I think that goes to like kind of the medicalization of the diagnosis in the first place. Interesting. I hadn't thought about how, you know, the, that most medical diagnoses, I guess, um, address symptoms more than they address the source. Is that Mm -hmm. true? Trying to think of, um, interesting. Yeah. I mean, sometimes I think it all comes down to dopamine deficiency, (laughs) And I'm like, is that really, is it, is it just that simple? Like, is that really it? Cause there's oftentimes now where I'm like, I just need to go for a run or I just need some chocolate or like, I'm like, what, you know, when I feel like I'm having those regulatory issues now, that's my first kind of mode of defense is like, okay, what am I lacking right now? And that's why I think where I get stuck is people think ADHD is, oh, you're either hyperactive or you're not able to pay attention. And I think of it more, it's, we're not able to pay attention on the right thing. So I can think about my thoughts. I can pay attention to like, I can do cheerleading 
layouts for hours, but that's not, I'm supposed to be doing my grad school homework. So it's again, this, this idea of like, oh, I can't pay attention to everything that does a disservice because then when I'm sitting here, like my mom's like, oh, well you can research this for four hours. So obviously you don't have ADHD. You can focus fine. It's just, you don't want to focus on this. And so I think it does a disservice in describing what people are experiencing and it blocks people a lot of times from seeking help. And especially girls, we talked a little bit about how we are taught to please. And so when you have a student who's a girl with ADHD and they're stuck in their thoughts instead of moving around and being disruptive to the class, they don't know that this is harder for them than others in the sense that, oh, there's things that can help me. Again, they do that self-blaming of everybody else in my class can pay attention. This must be me. And that creates shame. And then they don't want to tell people or they think, oh, it's just something I need to fix on my own. So I think really focusing in on what's occurring in our brain and what um, is happening in the different areas instead of just saying, oh, hyperactive, you move around a lot, inattentive, you struggle with paying attention because it's so much more complex and it presents so differently for different people. Like my ADHD compared to my fiance has ADHD. It's very different. Um, and so I think that that to these big assumptions and not so much of the education of what, what's going on. Yeah. And I, uh, yeah, I mean, I work with, um, preteen and teen girls as well. And like, I talk a lot with them about the other uh, intelligence centers. So it's like, we have our brain, but we also have our heart and we have our gut. And like the brain is not very trustworthy because a lot of the thoughts are, you know, from external sources. And so you can't always trust your thoughts, but like your gut, you can always trust. Right. And, and so that's one of those ones that you really need to like amplify what your gut is telling you. And, and so, like you said, like if you're having a stomach ache every morning before you go to school, like you you need to be able to make those connections. Like, what is my gut telling me <laughs> loud yes. and clear that I'm not listening to? But a lot of the time, like you said, like you might not even real, maybe you don't even know. I mean, we're not exactly the most attentive people when it comes to our physicality and we don't trust ourselves either because we've never been taught to. So how do you even begin to make those connections? And that's where I would hope that just like we have gym class, PE class, physical education, which I think some schools have pulled back on that or like if you're in a sport, you don't have to do it, which I don't love. But um, I really think thinking about the school system and how it's set up for one type of learner. And if we could create everybody takes a course that talks about your mental health and builds on it every year. So there's no reason we can't teach kindergartners the zones of regulation or um, or deep breathing or feeling identification. So I, I really wish we could do some more preventative work that is integrated into our school systems. And then instead of relying completely on teachers integrating it who aren't trained in mental health and having um, special education departments that are completely flooded and over overwhelmed. That would be so wonderful. Or even just teaching kids how to advocate. That's the thing I think that drives me crazy as my kids are getting older. Um, realizing, you know, my daughter's in eighth grade, she's about to go into high school. And I'm like, I'm, I'm realizing that like, 
her, the school system is set up in such a way that they like dis, you know, they, they discourage kids from advocating for themselves at every turn. And so I see how terrified she is to ask for help and how terrified she is to speak up and, and to email her teachers outside of class where I'm like, that's what they're there for. Like you, you know, you have mm-hmm. rights, but then I see how the school system is just like, they, they, it's built into the curriculum to teach these children that they don't have rights and that they, they can't advocate. And it's a mess. <laughs> <laughs> for now, we have TikTok, and I'll take yeah, it. Yeah, for now, we have this. You're doing amazing work, so thank you for the effort and and talent that you're putting into your videos. Your, I love your approach to therapy, and anyone who works with young girls and and preteens and teens is my hero because it's just such such important work. So thank you. Well, thank you for having me. This has been a fun podcast there you have it. Thank you for listening. And I really hope you enjoyed this episode of the Women and ADHD podcast. Also, as you know, we ADHDers crave feedback, and I would really appreciate hearing from you, the listener. Please take a moment to leave me a review over on my website, womenandadhd.com, or on Apple Podcasts, or Audible, or whatever other platform you're using. And if that feels like too much, and I get it, then just take a few seconds to give me a five-star rating. Boom, done. Or share this episode on your own social media to help reach more women who maybe have yet to discover and lean into this neurodivergent superpower, and they may be struggling and they don't even know why. Make sure to tag me on Instagram or Twitter. I'm at women and ADHD. If you are a woman who was diagnosed with ADHD in adulthood and you'd like to be interviewed as a guest on this podcast, please reach out to me. My email is womenandadhdpodcast at gmail.com. If you'd like to know more about me, head over to worthitwithkatie.com. That's where I help other women with ADHD break free from the yo-yo dieting and binge eating cycle for good. I'll see you next week when I interview another amazing woman who has recently discovered that she is not lazy or crazy, but she has ADHD. And now she's on the path to understanding that neurodivergence and finally using it to her advantage. Take care till then.